Welcome to the Science of Safe Food. In this series of lectures today, we are discussing the food safety for farmers market. And this lecture is gonna discuss um, principles of sanitation. So by definition, um, sanitation is when we adequately treat food contact surfaces by a process that is effective in destroying vegetative cells. That's really important here to keep in mind. We're not gonna kill spores by sanitation, we're gonna kill vegetative cells. And we're gonna reduce the number of undesirable microorganisms without affecting adversely the product or the safety for the consumers. Why should we worry? Because the cooking processes are not designed to destroy an infinite number of microorganisms. As I mentioned, um, in our previous lecture, when we cook our products, we are reducing the number of microorganisms and different processes have different goals, a 5 log reduction, a 12 log reduction, but it's not an infinite log reduction. So we need to start with products that are of good quality, microbial quality, so we don't overwhelm our process because our process is just going to do so much for us. So that's the idea. So the steps must be included to minimize the number of microorganisms before we cook that product. What are the sources of bacterial contamination? Raw products can bring uh, microorganisms with them. The equipment and appliance and utensils that are used in the kitchen can also contribute to bacterial contamination if they're not properly cleaned and sanitized. Employee handling. Um, if uh, hand washing is not done properly, it can also be a source of contamination. The water and any other added ingredients that we're going to put in the product after cooking, right? Sometimes we top our baked goods with some, um, uh, some flavoring ingredients. Uh, that Those are added after the cooking, so we need to be very careful with those because we're adding after the thermal um, kill or the thermal treatment of the product. So we need to be very careful. So very briefly, we're going to talk about uh, cleaning first because sanitizing actually starts with the cleaning steps. Cleaning means removing any uh, food soil from the surface. And then sanitizing means reducing the microbial load to a level that is considered safe for public health. So the proper cleaning and sanitizing steps are listed there. Rinse, clean, rinse again, and sanitize. So basically, by rinsing, we're going to remove any food particles that are, might be present in the surface um, of the utensil or in the surface of the food if we're washing uh, raw, for example, vegetables. Um, we're going to use warm water, not hot water. We're going to then clean to remove any carbohydrates, protein, fats, and minerals. And for that, we're going to need some sort of a soap, some sort of a detergent that's going to penetrate into that either utensil or um, product to lift um, the soil from the surface and wash away with the water. Then we're going to rinse again um, to get rid of that uh, soap. Um, things that we need to consider um, in choosing the, the, uh, the detergent that's going to be used for the cleaning operation is going to depend upon the type of soil so if you have a lot of lipids, a lot of fat, you may need a stronger detergent. The type of surface, because we don't want to be abrasive to the surface because we don't want to cause um, any issues there. 
And the method um, that it's available for cleaning also needs to be considered. If it's you know, hand wash or using a washing machine, that also is going to determine what kind of detergent that we need to use. After we washed with the, the detergent or used the detergent, we're going to have to rinse again. We're going to use clean, hot water to do that rinsing. And that's going to remove all the, the residuals from that detergent. And then we're going to sanitize to destroy the microorganisms that might be present. And we're going to reduce the microbial load to a level that is appropriate. We're not going to eliminate them all, but it's going to reduce to a level that is appropriate for public health. The types of sanitizers, um, there's a lot to choose from. Um, today we're going to focus on chlorine because that's um, the easiest to uh, access and the one that um, probably um, it's used the most in the food industry, especially um, food service um, and home uh, preparation or, or I should say commercial kitchens. Um, but here you have a list of the other ones, um, like chlorine is the most used, iodophores, which are iodine compounds, quaternary ammonium compounds, and others. Different um, sanitizers might be used in different situations, um, and you just need to know what is that you're trying to eliminate and then work with the manufacturer of those sanitizers to choose what is the best option for you. But in general, chlorine is a very broad um, sanitizer that it's uh, applicable in most instances. So we're going to talk a little bit about the basics of chlorination because that is um, very key to um, our, uh, our, um, our sanitation either working or not working. It's going to be based on this um, concepts here. So in our, um, let's consider that you have a water that it's inside of this container. Um, and we're going to use that water to prepare our solution um, to sanitize something else later, maybe a bench or, or a, a, a table or something. So we're going to use the water, the solution that we're going to prepare. We may not even see it, but the water may have some organic and inorganic impurities, things that by you know, uh, just using our eyes, we can't see it, but they might be present in that water. And of course, the dirtiest is that water, the more organic and inorganic impurities we will have. So if we add chlorine to that water to make our solution, what is going to happen is that chlorine is going to bind to that organic and inorganic impurities. And that chlorine now is ineffective for sanitation. It's like you haven't done anything to that water. So the idea here is that um, there's some chlorine that it's always going to go into binding the impurities of the water, and we call that the demand of the water, the chlorine demand of the water. If we continue to add beyond that point, see now how all my impurities were already bound to chlorine, but I'm still adding to it. Now that chlorine is going to be free, and that's the chlorine that's going to be available for sanitizing my surface. What is the take-home message? that you need to add enough chlorine to be over that demand of the water. And the more your water is dirty, or you know, if you're trying to reuse a water for sanitation, not a good idea, because now more and more of your chlorine is just wasted in binding things and not doing any good for you, okay? 
So what are, what are the factors that will affect our efficacy of chlorination? The chlorine concentration, right? I need to add enough to go above the chlorine demand of the water and still have enough chlorine to kill bacteria. The pH of the water is going to have an effect, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Organic and inorganic matter also makes a difference in the temperature of the water. So briefly, we're going to cover each of those. So there is a direct relationship between the chlorine concentration and the pH, and we're going to see that. And there's also a direct relationship between the chlorine concentration and the temperature, and we're going to see that. So first, talking about effect of chlorine concentration. If I have 20 ppm's, for example, of free chlorine, I'm going to kill a certain number of bacteria, as our um, diagram there is showing. If I have 50 ppm's of free chlorine, I'm going to kill more bacteria. So it's directly it's a direct relationship. They're directly correlated. The more chlorine, the more kill. But it has to be the free chlorine. Okay? Now if we talk about the pH of the water. The pH of the water is very important because the chlorine, um, the, the sanitizing power of chlorine is due to a acid that is formed in the water when the chlorine is added. So the lower the pH of the water, the more of this acid I can form. Just by adding the chlorine to the water, as it dissolves in the water, it forms this acid. But if the pH of the water is lower, meaning I'm in already in an acidic environment, I have more of that acid formed. And if I have more of that acid formed, I kill more bacteria, because the active form is the acidic form. So if my water has a low pH, it's better. That's what the chart here is showing us. The number of survivor microorganisms in minutes. If the pH of the water is 6, which is pretty neutral, close to, you know, the tap water, it might take 7 minutes of contact for a certain amount of chlorine um, to kill the bacteria. But if I drop the, if I increase the pH, I'm sorry, to a pH 8, which is a higher pH, look now how long it's going to take to achieve the same amount of microbial reduction. It's a much higher, much longer time. So the message here is that we need to be aware of the pH of the water, and we need to know that the lower the pH, the faster we're going to kill uh, the bacteria. However, um, there is a relationship with the chlorine concentration, and I'll explain. Remember that I said that when I add chlorine to the water, it forms this acid that is the active form of the sanitizer, and that's what we want it to happen. But if we overwhelm the water with chlorine, we're actually going to change the pH. If we add too much um, chlorine to the water, too much, uh, you know, sanitizer, the pH is going to actually raise. So now, is it good if I add in a very excessive amount of chlorine? No, because I'm increasing the pH and I'm killing less and less. So it's a balance. So we need to add the prescribed amount and um, we have levels uh, that we indicate as the good levels of free chlorine in the water. 
So if you are in those boundaries of the levels that are suggested for having a good sanitizing solution, you're fine. Just don't think that the more, the merrier in this case. Because if you go much above that, you're going to inverse the effect. And now the pH is going to raise, and you're going to lose the effect of that solution. Okay? So we need to stick with the prescribed levels. And we'll talk a little bit um, in a minute about it, how we can uh, check for those. So the pH of the water after we add the chlorine, it's what's going to determine the kill rate. If the pH is high, we're not going to kill much. If we add the chlorine at the prescribed levels and we're still low enough, we're going to have a great effect. Organic matter. I did mention about the binding of the um, chlorine by organic and inorganic compounds, right? And that's all stands. But regardless, um, let's, um, let's say that we have two situations. We have this bucket of water here where I um, have um, water that I just took it from the tap and um, I added enough chlorine that I went over the demand of the water, over the, chl the, the chlorine demand of the water, so I went above that. And I have, for example, 50 ppms of free chlorine. 50 ppms of free chlorine. That's what's going to kill the bacteria. That's what is in my bucket. Then I have a second bucket here that it's water that I'm reusing just because I thought I could. Um, this water has a lot of protein and fat in it, you know, little residuals of food just floating around. I added enough chlorine that I also achieved 50 ppms of free chlorine. Do you think these two solutions will have the same effect? They both have 50 ppms of free chlorine. Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah? Yeah? No. And the answer is no. Why? Because now all that junk is going to physically prevent the bacteria from finding that chlorine. So it becomes a, you know, like think about a, a traffic, traffic in Lincoln versus traffic in California. You know, you have a lot more people on the road. It's a lot harder to find somebody, right? Or maybe we can think of it a very busy day at the fair, trying to find somebody at that fair. It's harder, right? So now, even though you may have the same amount of free chlorine, it's going to be less effective because you have the issue with the physical difficulty of putting in contact the bacteria and the sanitizer. Okay? And that's what this chart is showing us. In all of these cases, the available chlorine that was added was 4.25 ppms. However, in water, in less in half a minute, or maybe you know, between half, uh, uh, let's say, uh, maybe 40 seconds here, something like that, between 0.5 and 1 minute. Um, in clean water, in clean buffer, we were able to reduce this many microorganisms. You know, we saw this much kill. As we used a starch solution that had 5% starch, or a sugar cane solution that had 40% sugar in it, or tomato serum, or tomato juice, you see how that effect is way less, you know, uh, it, it's reduced. The effect of the chlorine is much reduced. You had the same amount of free chlorine, but the chlorine can't find the bacteria to kill it. It's way too much things going on inside of that solution. So bottom line and message, 
use the clean water and prepare your solution with the prescribed amount and verify that you have the amounts that are uh, needed. So even when the levels of free chlorine are the same, the suspended matter physically blocks the action, protecting the bacteria. Temperature is another effect that is interesting because the higher the temperature, the more active the chlorine is. You know, you, you increase a little bit the temperature and then things just kind of move faster in that solution. So again, by moving faster, the chlorine can find the bacteria faster and then it acts much faster. But if we start increasing the temperature a lot, what happens with that chlorine in solution? Starts to boiling out. How does it smell around a hot tub? Exactly. So that's all chlorine that's being pushed out of solution. If the chlorine is not in solution, how good the chlorine is for us? No good at all. So we need to be, just be careful because if we increase too much the temperature now, the chlorine is less active. How do we go about? We use clean water, like I said, in that bucket. We add chlorine that is enough to meet the prescribed amounts, and then we measure it using a chlorine test paper. Um, so basically, we can just use this very simple um, chlorine strips, and we're going to see some of them in the laboratory, um, how they work. And it's very handy, um, and they help us make sure that our sanitizing solution is um, in top shape to do the job that it has to do. right? How do you choose a sanitizer? You want one that it will kill microorganisms quickly. It's safe and not irritating to employees. Um, has no adverse effect on foods, is very economical, easy to test, stable, and readily soluble um, in water. We wanted to, that solution to be easily made. Beyond sanitation, we need to prevent cross-contamination in the kitchen and the kitchen preparation area, because otherwise, everything that we do, we just undo by cross-contamination. What does it mean? We need to make sure that the people that are working are healthy and they don't come to work if they're not healthy because that's a main source of cross-contamination. Um, we need to make sure that they have very high hygiene. Uh, we need to make sure that the hand washing is proper and it's done the right way with the right detergents. Um, we could, if we want to take one step further, color code the cleaning supplies um, and say that certain things I'm only going to use for raw ingredients, certain things or certain sponges I'm only going to use for cooked things and you know, keep separate the raw and the cooked. It's, it's an idea. Um, you could color code your cleaning supplies, your sponges and such, and you could also color code and separate your utensils that you use for either cutting raw ingredients, cutting uh, cooked ingredients, you could color code those knives and just keep them separate and wash them separate. It's an idea to take one step further. Um, organizing your food storage areas from top to bottom. Um, cooked on the top, raw at the bottom, because if something should happen, if your freezer happens to defrost or something, you're not going to have drippings of raw things on top of cooked things. So that's the idea um, of the organization. And most importantly, be aware and share, because that helps a lot preventing contamination and cross-contamination. Any questions about sanitation here? Yes? So it's easy to quantify the free chlorine and the pH, but how physically dirty your water is, is kind of 
how do you quantify that when you should change your dirty water? Because that's one person's perspective over another. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to start and I'm going to bounce to them because I'm sure they have, uh, you know, something to add. Um, so basically the idea is preparing the water fresh and using like tap water, clean water. And when you add your chlorine, it's going to automatically meet that demand and you keep adding until your strip reads what the prescribed level should be, which is either 20, 50 or whatever PPMs. Then now your question is, how long do I use that solution? Um, that's very intuitive. I don't know if uh, the regulators have some hints, perhaps? Well, when we do inspections, of course, our, our code requires a sanitizer solution to be at proper concentration and then, you know, just not visibly soiled, basically. So we just look at it and, you know, if, it, if it's clean, clear, uh, proper concentration, we'd be fine with that. But if we look at it and it's visibly soiled, it's, you know, it's gray or, you know, just got a lot of particulate matter in it, we would ask that you uh, change that out. Thanks, Justin. Question in the back? Uh, what's the temperature for burn off, uh, for chlorine burn off in a dish machine? It's for the video. The temperature for chlorine burn off in a dish machine, when, what, what temperature does that usually start to volatize the chlorine? Regarding the question with the highest temperature before chlorine starts to evaporate, we have a reference from the current food code that suggests that the in dishwashers that use chlorine as a sanitizer, the temperature should be anything between 120 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, yes. Do you have any for food safety for FISMA, do you have any validation material for, for not only sanitation water, but also when you're hydrocooling produce or cooling produce, not to sanitize the produce, but to maintain the chlorine level so you don't inoculate the produce that you're cleaning or cooling, what level that chlorine needs to be at, or what level that, what free chlorine level that water needs to be held at? So to answer your question, I'm going to refer to some training materials that we have for the FISMA preventive controls. Um, so here in the Food Processing Center, we offer that uh, training uh, once a year or sometimes twice a year, and it's using materials that are approved by the FDA. One of the exercises in that particular training um, is about uh, processing and producing a fresh uh, vegetable salad. And one of the preventive controls for that process is uh, washing um, carrots in a chlorine solution. So basically what they have suggested as a preventive control in that specific case is that your um, used water, so what we're going to control is the levels of chlorine after the washing. They need to be at least 10 ppms or above and that would ensure that even the last carrot that was washed had enough chlorine in the water to um, account for the sanitizing effect. And that water also has to have a pH of um, at the most 7.5. So the pH has to be 7.5 or below. And the amount of residual chlorine after each batch has to be 10 ppm or 
above. In order to achieve that, you may have to start your batch or your run of carrots with a chlorine solution of 50 parts per million. So the idea is you start a wash with 50 parts per million, you process a batch of carrots, and at the end, you have to have at least 10 parts per million to ensure that even the last carrot got enough sanitizer. And the pH of the water should also be controlled at pH 7.5. Okay? I'll just hold it while I'm speaking. Yep. Okay. Um, as a home brewer, I've become used to using um, some of the, like, star sand. And I know I've read online that it's some of the parts per million are considered more than acceptable for kitchen use. And I just wondered if that's a, something that is acceptable or if anyone has any input as to that because it's readily available and it is very effective. What is the name of the sanitizer it's again? Star Sand. Star Sand. It's I'm a, not familiar. It's phosphoric acid based. The regulators, perhaps? So it's, uh, it's acid. Acids does the sanitizing? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've used Star Sand homebrewing too. Uh, you know, our requirements, there's a lot of different sanitizers you can use, so it's just got to meet the EPA approved. guidelines and be approved. So as long as it's an approved and you're following the directions and it's at the correct parts per million used according to the directions, it's fine. Yes. Okay, for home use, you know, counter stuff is hydrogen peroxide that comes in, you know, is it 3% bottles for like 35 cents? You just put a spray nozzle, it nozzle doesn't smell like chlorine, you don't get it in your eyes or whatever. Is that considered safe for home use? The question is about uh, hydrogen peroxide. It does have a sanitizing effect. I don't know if it's acceptable. I'll leave for the regulators to maybe fill us in. We, we do get questions about peroxides um, and ultimately it's not addressed in the food code, you know, um, for, you know, for home use, um, I don't know, we, we just don't see it being used much in the uh, commercial environment that we regulate. I will say that peroxide, there are more peroxide, commercial peroxides that are becoming available now. So I also regulate child cares and they're using them more in that environment. Um, and they are really effective. The other great thing is they're effective against norovirus a lot of times too, whereas the quats aren't. Bleach and peroxide are. So that's a really positive effect also. But just to kind of finalize that uh, conversation, we don't have prescribed levels or we don't have much guidelines. To this day. As far as using like a, a bottle of peroxide from the counter, I don't know. There are commercially available peroxide pre-mixed pre ones that would, you could use. For food applications, she's asking? Yeah. So you would just have to work with, I would, I would suggest working with a manufacturer of a sanitizer because they will have the prescribed levels that are approved by EPA. They've done all the work for us in that regard. And Ben was mentioning that if the sanitizer is EPA approved and are used on the prescribed levels, it would be acceptable. Did I get the message correct? Yes. 
I was just wondering because there it goes up to what 51 percent of hydrogen peroxide. Then you got to get permits because it's an explosive or an accelerant or yeah. something. But I think they use it because it doesn't leave a chlorine smell. Yeah. So again, I would just check with that manufacturer of that particular product and see if they have a diluted version. Sometimes they already sell a ready-to-use version of it, and then you don't have to worry about that, uh, those safety issues, like employee safety issues. You can just use the, the solution as it comes. Okay? Okay, great session. Okay, so we are scheduled for a break. We're running a little behind and I apologize, but it's been such a great discussion that I, I don't think I would change anything in that regard. So maybe we just do a short break um, and be back here just to try and keep up with time as much as possible. <laughs>